At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. We've got quite a spread for you on The Political Breakfast this week. I'm Dennis O'Hare. I'll be your host, bringing you opinions from the left and the right on a special live audience edition of the podcast. Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms shakes up her cabinet and promises transparency as she closes out her first 100 days in office. The clock is ticking down for Governor Deal to sign or veto a bill that could change how new cities are created in Georgia. And what will a state's next governor do about Medicaid expansion? Republican strategist Brian Robinson and Democratic strategist Theron Johnson dug into all of that in front of a live audience earlier this week at an event hosted by the Georgia Tech School of Public Policy. I'm going to start with Theron here because we're going to start at Atlanta City Hall where Mayor Bottoms asked every member of her cabinet, including some very high profile folks like the airport commissioner, to turn in their resignations so that she can decide which ones to accept. Theron, let's just take a look at what would be the reason, the rationale, from both perspectives, policy and politics, to say, okay, I'm going to publicly ask everybody to turn their resignations. It's not unheard of, it's done often with a change of government, but not usually in such a public way. Well, it's usually done at the beginning of a mayor's administration or a governor's administration. Um, When you come in, um, you want to bring in your own people. Uh, And not saying that the people who are there are not good people who have served the city in a a good capacity. Uh, But what Mayor Bottoms did, Dennis, is that when she came in in her very first cabinet meeting, uh, she did uh, a very, she sort of did an assessment of the current staff that she had, and she told the staff that I'm going to take 90 days to really see where we are as a city, where we are as a cabinet, and then I'm going to come back and probably make some decisions about um, fulfilling some permanent people in some permanent positions. What was unique about um, this particular cabinet meeting is that at a time where the city is going through a FBI investigation, and I'm paraphrasing what she said today in her press conference. Um, she's got to make sure that the people of Atlanta uh, trust what's going on in city government. And she also said that she wants to bring in her own people who are going to lead the city and really restore sort of a new culture uh, in City Hall. Now, there are those that say, well, did the press or did some of these unfortunate events force Mayor Bottoms to make this decision? Uh, People are questioning the timing. And to be honest with you, I think that it did. But I, I will tell you, that this mayor uh, today, and I, I don't want this to get muddled uh, in all of this uh, um, you know, asking people to resign, but she did something that was pretty uh, unparalleled in the city and really set a new president. She basically came out today with Atlanta's open uh, checkbook 
and which is going to be an online website where we as citizens, as taxpayers in the city, can go to a website and view all of the transactions, all of the contracts, all of the salaries of city's employees. And so the undercurrent theme in this is transparency. And it's something that she ran on. Uh, it's something that the critics uh, who supported her opponents wanted to see in City Hall. And I want to applaud this mayor for really uh, doing the right thing as far as transparency. But as someone who's actually worked in a mayor's cabinet before, twice, um, when Mayor Franklin came in, uh, it was very clear to all of the Campbell, Mayor Campbell employees that your last day at the City Hall was going to be December 31st. Uh, when I came in with Mayor Reed uh, as senior advisor, uh, we did ask everyone for their resignations. Um, we took a few weeks to really evaluate who we wanted to keep. Uh, we set up a transition team and did a search for a lot of key positions. And so I think that we just got to be patient. Uh, and know that this mayor is on the right track. And I'm happy um, that she's starting to distance herself a little bit by some of the bad apples and some of the things that she's inherited. And she's really taking a bold step towards being a transparent government. You know, uh, on our last political breakfast spot in the podcast, I said that Mayor Bottoms needs to go out this afternoon and say, I am. Um, holding a news conference and I'm going to clean house at City Hall and we're going to start from scratch. And the scandals that are mounting, the public uh, open records requests that aren't being responded to, the procurement problems, I'm taking care of all of it. Buck stops here, I'm in control, the status quo is unacceptable. And so she could do, she could do one of two things. She can go out there and say, the status quo is unacceptable, I'm going to fix it, I'm going to do better. Or she could use the B option, which is just tweet, it's a witch hunt. <laughs> Both work. Not to defend her, because she doesn't necessarily need me to defend her, but I, I truly believe that if you look at the Atlanta Open Checkbook Initiative around transparency, some of the things that she really wanted to do, she's just really been distracted and been backpedaling on issues that occurred before she took office. I mean, you look at the ransomware attack, you look at... Uh, an audit that came out about the airport. Uh, now we're finding that a person who worked in City Hall under the former administration, a former campaign person, uh, had 11 count indictment. So every time she wants to communicate with the citizens of Atlanta to show uh, what she's doing, she is stuck in this pattern of defending and sort of to have to respond to things that happened in the previous administration. I mean, as we sit here, there's an open GBI investigation uh, to uh, withholding open records. And so I think that how she goes into her 100 days, uh, I think she's got to take that momentum and she's got to keep it and she's got to make sure that she uh, promotes her agenda uh, and not let the press continue to drag her down with some of the stuff that happened before she got there. I know, we're such a weight on people. <laughs> yeah. uh, specifically though, Theron, how does she do that? Because the investigation into the bribery scandal is going to continue, that is a fact. We're going to see more come out. We're going to see possibly more folks indicted. Who knows? Yeah. That's going to be going on. They're going to continue to be looking into how the ransomware attack happened. All of these things are going to be with her. You said she needs to get her, keep her momentum going as she gets past 100 days. From, and that's where the policy comes in, because the election's over. Specifically, how does she 
generate her own momentum while all this other stuff is going on. Well, the other thing that Mayor Bottoms did this week, and it again got overshadowed by the bad stuff that people want to uh, amplify that's happened at City Hall, but working with her Department of Corrections chief, uh, they created this reentry program. So basically, people who are made some bad choices, had some bad things happening to them in their lives, they're able to go back out and be productive citizens. Uh, in Atlanta. And I think we all agree uh, that if you can rehab someone, if you can give them the necessary skills and training uh, to go out and be productive citizens, that benefits all of us. I think that the second thing she's got to do is that she's got to continue to fully cooperate with the investigation uh, and be timely and responsive to all of the requests that are coming, not just from the press, but from this investigation um, by the district attorneys. And then the third thing I think you should really um, give this mayor a chance to really come out with a very bold um, uh, policy uh, statement and, and, and really come out to talk about affordability. I mean, that's something that she really, really... Uh, that's what she ran on. That's what she ran on. And then, so when I hear uh, some of Brian's friends up in Buckhead uh, saying that, you know, we don't want to hear about affordability. We want to know why all these shoplifters are coming to our small businesses and creating all this crime. You know, we have our big houses on Hammersham Road, and we have three-car garages and Medicare lawns like Brian. Um, you know, affordability doesn't affect us. But what I would tell people in the city of Atlanta is that if you make it affordable for people to live here, then ultimately they're going to live in the city, and then it's also going to help with economic development, and it's also going to improve our public schools. Because if people have to make a choice between sending their kids to a public school versus a private school versus paying their mortgage, that's a tough choice to make. But I believe that under this affordability program, which is going to be up to a billion dollars, the mayor's going to put in the public money and she's also going to raise the private money. I think affordability is going to be something that's going to transform um, the city like we've never seen before. Yeah, I'm dubious about the whole affordability thing and not because of three car garages, the manicured laws. Um, the, I think the mayor has done a lot of great things to try to drive a message through the steady drip, 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 the drip, drip, drip that has become water torture for this administration. And it's really sort of unfair. I feel for her to a degree because a lot of the scandal is not her scandal. This, none of this has to do with the Bottoms administration, but she's having to do deal with the fallout of it. And a lot of the personnel is holdover, so there is this weird construct going on right now. And so she's doing things to try to drive a message through all of that noise. And then doing the transparency thing, which I think was a stroke of genius. I think it's brilliant. It was a great visual. She had a huge crowd there. She, she looked like a leader in the camera shot. So you know, that's kind of how my mind works, is how does it look to the person on the other side of the screen? And it was all really well done. So she's doing all the things you're supposed to do, but they're the traditional things you do. And there's going to have to be something sort of untraditional, out of the ordinary, to break through the scandal noise that's not of her own doing. Now, I don't know how you do it. I mean, very few people other than Donald Trump can do it, and he does it extraordinarily well. But she's got to break through that noise, and it's going to be hard. Affordability, here's the thing with that, is there is affordable housing. It just may not be in Atlanta. You know, there's, there's affordable housing in South DeKalb or Southwest Cobb or in Douglas County, Rockdale County. It is around. not all available or have access to public transit, which I understand is a problem. But public affordability, uh, public housing affordability 
is the squeezing the bubble. You know, if you squeeze one in, it's going to pop somewhere else. So, so it's, it's a really hard path to navigate in who qualifies and, and, and how do you administer it. it it's, it's a really tricky proposition. You've been part of an administration as it comes in. Yeah. She really has a tough job here just from a governing point of view because she needs institutional memory. She needs institutional memory not just in the jobs where folks actually do the work every day, but in some of those supervisory and top department head positions. At the same time, she's got to say, look, I'm my own person, this is a new administration, and here are some places where things weren't getting done. So it's hard to strike that balance, isn't it? Every new administration coming in faces this, this issue, and almost all of them keep a significant amount of the people who were there before for that reason. When Governor Jill came in, which is the transition that I am most familiar with because I was on the campaign staff and there the whole time for it, I had no idea how this works. And in the, on the state level, what happens is you get this transition committee about uh, four to six people, and they sit in there with the new executive, in my case, the governor, and then all of the agency heads kind of come in there and make the argument for why they should be able to keep their jobs. And in the cases of Mayor Bottoms, who had been on city council, she probably had some institutional knowledge. She probably knew where there were problem areas and which places they were doing a great job. With Governor Deal, he was coming in from Washington yeah, he after was a 18 years. And so we had to really count on the institutional knowledge of those around us. And we had to take a gamble keeping or letting go some of these agencies. For the most part, we, we kept the majority of them on. And it ran very smoothly. And in these jobs, what you find is very few people do these agency head jobs for a career. It's a churn. So even if you keep them on, within two or three years they're gone and you've got your, your own people in there. But nobody, no government needs to do a wholesale flip over. No revolution ever leads to like really great government the next year. If you go, you know, it's the, it's the Stalin problem, you know, they killed all the people who could do it. And, and then, and so you have chaos on the other end. And so you've got to keep some of that institutional knowledge around. And even the most corrupt organizations, and I'm not saying that about the former administration in City Hall, but obviously there were some corruption issues or the FBI wouldn't be holding news conferences saying, hey, call me. And the, um, even in those corrupt organizations where there's serious problems and serious reforms that are needed, there are still really good people within those. And Mayor Bynum's challenge is to make sure she keeps those good people because wholesale change won't work. Let's move to the Capitol for a moment. And Brian, will, again, we'll start with you here because Governor Deal, the clock is ticking. He's got a bunch of bills to sign, some of which are going to be pretty easy for him to decide. But let's pick one that really poses a challenge and just use it as an example for some others. Many of you may know that a bill passed to create a new city in Henry County, the city of Eagles Landing, which, hey, we've had new city bills pass all the time, but this one's different because it takes part of an existing city. It doesn't just go to unincorporated land. It takes part of the existing city of Stockbridge and the vote, the yes or no, will only be given to the people in the proposed new city. So the folks in the areas of Stockbridge that might be absorbed don't have a say. 
This is a bill that has gotten folks really riled up, and it is different from anything the governor has faced before with new cities, Brian. So how does he try to sort through the potential political, policy, and possibly legal difficulties here before he decides what to do? This was supported overwhelmingly by Republicans in the House and the Senate, mm -hmm. uh, opposed largely by Democrats. So you've got that built-in partisan tilt there mm -hmm. to, be, to begin with. Two, this was carried in the Senate by Senator Brian Strickland of Henry County, who is one of Governor Deal's three floor leaders in the state Senate. Someone who has the job as the governor's floor leader of carrying the governor's legislation through the legislature. So he's piled up some IOUs. Yeah, absolutely. And it, uh, uh, Senator Strickland's wife, who was worked for me uh, once upon a time on, in Congress and is now a has been with the governor for the last eight years, so there's, there's a family connection there as well. And I, I don't think that he is going to go out there and veto a bill that's been largely supported by Republicans when he doesn't really have a dog in the fight. And he's than, not running for re-election, and that could work both ways. He could oh, say, it, free, it, it, it well, frees well, him up to veto it if he it wants to. It frees him up, yeah, he has, I mean, he has no political consequences. It, he is really in a very unique position because he's 75 years old, and he'll be 76 in, in August, so he's really too old to do what governors do when they leave office to get rich. You know, if you leave and you're, you're 58 years old, you've got 10 years to go be on corporate boards. You know, if you're on three corporate boards, they pay you 150 apiece, you go to two or three meetings a year, you've got a nice little life, you know? And you're still getting your government pension coming in. I mean, it's, it's, it's the high life. And he can't do that, because he's gonna be too old. So. Um, he doesn't have to make anybody happy. He doesn't have to get a job at the end of this. He's going to go to his cabin in Habersham County come January of 2019 and sit in a rocking chair pretty much at will. That's what he's going to do. So he doesn't have to make anybody happy. So he's in a really unique position. It was different for, say, you know, Kasim Reed. It was different for President Obama. Both of them were going to go on to highly lucrative careers afterwards. They had some, they had some calculations to make. Governor Dill has no calculations other than What's going to make Mrs. Deal happy? So what about Eagles Landing in Stockton? <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I don't, I I don't know that she'll weigh in on this, although she might. She, might. She, she has strong opinions on many things. Uh, I would say there's a 98% chance that he signs that bill. Governor Deal has vetoed precious little. And part of that's because if he has a problem with the bill in January or February, he calls that legislator in and says, if you change this to this, I'll sign it. Or he goes to the speaker, or goes to the lieutenant governor, and goes, make sure that doesn't pass. I would have to veto it. You know, so he does stuff on the front end to make sure that what gets to his desk, for the most part, is going to get signed. So it's been a very effective strategy. So given that strategy, we can assume Eagles Landing and almost everything else is going to get signed. I don't. I would not be shocked if he doesn't veto anything. So Theron. With Democrats opposing the bill, do Democrats then have to say, or the Stockbridge folks particularly, but certainly leaders from that area, Emmanuel Jones and some of those folks, do they have to look at it and say, do we sue over this? Because this is a precedent-setting bill because it takes part of an existing city. This proposed bill will de-annex from a city that's operations are doing just fine. Um, and so it's a financial issue, right? Because this is a city where if you take away this population in the city, 
um, they won't have the, the money to even operate. This little carved out area will vote on something that will affect the entire city of Stockbridge. And so it's not even the majority of the area of Stockbridge uh, that these people will be deciding. I think the governor has got to veto this bill. Let me tell you why. I think that it will set a president in this state that places like Buckhead wake up one morning and decide, well, I don't want to be a part of the city of Atlanta anymore. So I'm going to get my state representative or my state senator to try to basically get a Republican-led initiative approved by Republicans because they have this ultimate supermajority in the Senate. I think that if you start giving people the ability, just because they don't like the way the city is being run, to go out and lobby your legislator and get them to introduce a bill to de-annex from the city, then I think that it totally takes away what Republicans in this state have talked a lot about, and that is local control. And so I think that if the governor signs this bill and begins this slippery slope, we're going to see many, many areas in Georgia try to piggyback on what was just done. To me, it's a fairness issue. It's an issue of really, truly giving cities local control to operate. And then more importantly, is that it was really a partisan bill that really went down the line. And so I think that Senator Jones and others and the mayor of Stockbridge have got to put some pressure on this governor in a very strategic way. Don't embarrass him. Don't try to force him to do anything. But I think they've got to make a clear argument that if you start allowing cities to de-annex or areas to de-annex from cities, then this will be a slippery slope where you'll start having places uh, all across this state um, taking away resources from cities that are actually being run well. And so um, this is an issue that I think that Democrats can run on in these midterm elections. Um, and if Brian is telling me that the governor is 98% uh, inclined to sign it, then again, as he just displayed his good old boy system to us, uh, <laughs> I think that the governor is highly likely to sign it. Real quickly, Brian, before we get yeah. to you, because you're shaking your head here, but I want to yeah. ask, Theron, you've just outlined the policy and the political arguments the Democrats can make, but do they have a legal case if he signs it? Can they go to the courts and say, this bill is unconstitutional even though the governor signed it? Well, yes, and I think that they, they do. Any lawyer will, will look at this, and I think that lawyers um, looked at this uh, during the session. Now, if this was to go through, I think you're definitely going to see a lawsuit um, um, propose, and then I think that you're going to get caught up in a lot of legal talking about really does this uh, interpret the way the current state law is written, and I think you will probably see a legislator come back the next session and try to change the law to prevent this from happening all across the state. Brian, you were shaking your yes. head. Pick up on your point. Two quick points. One, the uh, my explanation was more of a look behind the curtain of here who the players are. But what this is, in the, in the larger picture, is part of a movement happening all over Metro Atlanta of municipalization of unincorporated un areas of counties. Now, I live in one of those. I live in Brookhaven, city of Brookhaven, which six years ago was unincorporated to cap. And that's happening all over the place, in, um, in, in white areas, in African-American areas, in mixed areas, which is what we're talking about here. The Stockbridge is the majority African-American, but the new Eagles Landing will be 50-50, essentially. So what you're saying is part of a larger trend of people wanting more cities because they want more, more services as, um, as these 
densities grow in these places. But you just said unincorporated for Brookhaven, which is true. The difference here is that you're taking part of an existing city and yeah, basically it hauling it into another one. Yeah, no, but, but, but yeah, but what, what it's also taking in unincorporated areas and then a part of what right. was old stuff. No, this, yeah. this has never been done before, to your point, Dennis. And Brian wants us to believe that this is sort of this trend. And the one thing that it he is. leaves, no, it's not, Brian. The it is a trend. No, no, Brian. I can name 10 the, of them. No, no, you can't. <laughs> this is the first time in Georgia that a, a existing neighborhood, this little golf community where you have a lot of affluent African-Americans uh, who now live there, and this, it was for a long time occupied by a lot of affluent white people. Never in Georgia's history have a bill been passed to allow an area within a city, within a functional city, not an unincorporated area, to de-annex from that city to create their own little city. And, and that's where I go back to that this has never been done before, and this is a slippery slope. My second point was political. I do hope that they take Theron's advice and they run on this issue because nobody cares. <laughs> As the governor considers whether to sign this or any other bill, he's going to be talking to his own council, right? Yes. And um, they have to go through every bill and make sure that it doesn't conflict with other parts of statute. It's a long, laborious process. And they've got 40 days from the end of session. And that first week, that first seven days, they are on vacation. Like everybody, sunny die, it's over, and then and everyone disappears. Everybody decamps to Augusta for for a week, and so we, we're just getting out of that. So it's really just starting this week that um, that they're beginning to look at this stuff. So it's a, it's a very compressed uh, matter, and there's a lot of technical things, and, and they're they're doing it with a very short staff. Other bills that both of you will be watching closely. Obviously, the transit bill is one of them because that is really a sweeping change to how we do things. Um, Brian, how about you? I don't think there are a lot of open questions about what he's going to sign and not sign. I mean, he's obviously championed the abortion bill. He championed the tax cut bill. He championed and actually brought it to the table. You said abortion. You mean adoption bill? Or? Did I say abortion? Yes. Oh, God. I'm so That's sorry. a part of your talking I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you start that again? Way. <laughs> yeah, um, the adoption bill. Yes, he has, cha he has championed that. He has championed the tax cut. He has championed um, the the transit bill. He said good things about all of these. And obviously, we're funding education yeah. at the highest level in in decades. So he's we, we know where he is on most of these things. The things that I, I I'm looking at because what's going to happen is undetermined is rural broadband and it's it means something to all of us because the, there are a lot of folks who live in metro atlanta that are like me and theron like can, can work from home in bedroom slippers and a robe if they so choose uh, i have an office brian i go into i don't you know <laughs> yeah. as, as african-american i'm giving you another look behind the curtain just, to what I happens just, in my I house just, i just don't want my clients yeah. to think that i'm sitting at home in, in a robe and slippers just don't put the FaceTime on while you're doing that <laughs> You can do it from anywhere in the state if there's rural broadband anywhere in the state. And I know a lot of people who grew up in rural areas who would love to move back there. I mean, you could, for what, you would spend $800,000 on for a house in Theron's neighborhood. You would spend $100,000 for uh, so many places south of I-20, right? So there's, a, there's no traffic in a lot of those areas. A lot, a lot of quality. You can go hunting if you so choose, fishing. Uh, things aren't necessarily right at your fingertips here. 
So rural broadband can open up a lot of economic possibilities because it can reverse the brain drain of people like y'all, if y'all are from rural areas, and I bet most of you aren't. Uh, 30 years ago, people in your chairs, many of them were from rural areas. Today, they're not. Uh, but for those who would want to have that lifestyle, they can go back there. You, you have brain gain in those communities. It's huge. So we set up a structure in the General Assembly this year for the state to partner with providers of broadband to extend into these areas that are uneconomical to service. You know, when you are going being down many electrical poles with a wire to get to one house that's going to pay the cable company $180 a month, and that cable company is paying $19 for every pole attachment for the EMC pole to get to that house, it doesn't make any sense to do it. So we're creating these partnerships with the state where, there, where taxpayers will subsidize some of this construction and this build out, will draw down some federal funds. What we don't know yet is how this is going to manifest itself. We don't know the structure. There's no appropriation at this juncture, so another thing that's going to have to be determined at some time in the future. So you know, what we have right now is also we have a competition between you know, the cable guys and and like AT and T, and then competition between them and the EMCs who want to start providing broadband service. And the others, the current providers, are nervous because the EMCs are going to be competing against them and are the landlord for the wires, <laughs> and they can set the, the rate for the. So a lot of complicated and interesting little tidbits in there. A lot to be worked out. A lot to be worked out. Kind of like, like the transit bill. <laughs> like the transit bill, and the, and the other thing that's that's still to be determined is what is Georgia going to do about its rural health care crisis? And we've got this boogeyman out there of Obamacare, and there's, there's this uh, movement of, to expand Medicaid, and it's been, the, the pressure is building. A lot of people in the business community are pushing for it, so that in many of these uninsured people in these rural areas, the idea is if all of a sudden they've got coverage under Medicaid, and when they show up in the emergency room, they're now a paying customer as opposed to a non-paying customer. We're going to be able to prop up these rural hospitals. And I'm not positive on the economics of that, but it's something that the state's going to have to figure out because there's this huge pot of money that we are paying into and, we're and not getting, getting nothing out of. of. And so I don't know what the answer is, but more than likely we're going to have another Republican administration in the governor's office and governor's mansion starting in January of 2019. I've got a response to this. This is a revolutionary uh, moment for us because to hear Brian Robinson, who has argued me down for two years now about how this state needs to expand Medicaid and how he spent two years criticizing President Obama for Obamacare, and I've been asking this Republican-led legislature to expand Medicaid and to really deal with the gap that we have, but just hear you now say that if we figure out a way that makes sense to get a return on our investments, which we're already paying, but not to be afraid because there's a Democrat in the White House who created this health care program that benefited over 20 plus million people and gave them access to health care that now George all of a sudden wants to look at expanding Medicaid. Well, here's, well, here's the interesting here's thing, the trick, though. though. It's, it's tricky. The, the, <laughs> the difference is the Obama administration was inflexible with states. It was like, you got to do it this way. You got you to insure this many people. You can't have work requirements for Medicaid able-bodied adult recipients. 
And well, there were, there were some is, states that worked out compromises, oh, though. There were done compromises, but there's no state that was given a work requirement okay. waiver by the Obama administration. That was right. a no-go for them. So we're, there's the thinking is, if Georgia, working with a Republican administration, and we had hoped it was going to be, we had hoped it was going to be Tom Price that we were negotiating with, yeah, in Georgia, that didn't work out. Um, <laughs> We thought we'd be negotiating with Tom Price, where we could have a Georgia-specific plan that allowed us to have conservative reforms in it that would make it more sellable to Georgia Republican voters. But Brian, here's the catch, about. though. There is a catch to this that I've noticed. I mean, I've been having conversations with all of the major party candidates for governor on Morning Edition. And I haven't talked to all of the Republicans yet, but I've talked to most of them. Brian, you just said there will likely be a Republican in the governor's mansion. Every single Republican candidate that I have asked this question of, and I think I've asked it of all of them, has said, I will not expand Medicaid. And it doesn't, and most of them have even ruled out some sort of third way, which has been talked about a lot. Governor Kasich in Ohio and other places have talked about some sort of Medicaid expansion that isn't called that or it's the states and the feds work out their own sort of compromise with the rules a little bit different. They've even ruled that out so far. So right. what, is, what are the prospects if every candidate, including the eventual GOP nominee, promises not to expand Medicaid? I think what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to message it in the way of we're not doing Obamacare, we're doing a Georgia plan. And it's going to take some of the elements and some of the machinery of Obamacare and get some of our money back. You have to message it as it's our plan, our money, our solution. That's what it's going to have to be. And you're not going to see Republicans talking about expanding Medicaid in a Georgia Republican primary, which has got a very conservative electorate. Uh, that's not going to be what, what, what they, what voters don't want to hear that because, and you can't say, you can't have to speak with nuance about this to the media because the media is not going to be nuanced in its reporting. It's going to be ex-candidate. That's my job. to expand Medicaid. <laughs> you know, to expand Medicaid. Nobody can have that headline, so it's just easier to go, we're not going to talk about this at all. That's so, our whole I point. think there's going to be a third, there's going to be a third way at some juncture if, the expansion exists and continues to exist as it does today because we cannot have this two-tiered system in America where some states are getting billions and billions more than other states, which is what we have right now through our own design, through our mm -hmm. own design. But to sell this to a Georgia electorate, it's going to have to not, it's going to have to contain cost. What, what Theron would have would be like this open-ended plan where whoever came on, hopped on the plan, they stayed on there forever, and just drew down, drew down money with no limit. And what that does is it crowds out public safety, it crowds out um, transportation, it crowds out education, because it's an entitlement. You can't stop it once you get it. And so you have to be really careful. You've got to make sure that there's time limits for how long you can be on. You've got to have uh, co-pay so people have skin in the game. You've got to have work requirements so no one just lives off, the, off the, uh, uh, the milk and honey of the land. There's many things that the Obama administration would not have allowed. That's going to be the only way we can consider it here in Georgia. So, so Brian does a really good job of telling Thank you what you. Um, he's telling his, his, his candidate for governor to say to his Republican uh, primary vote. And we should disclose here, Brian is on the staff of KCK. I am no, I'm a advisor. I'm advisor. A, <laughs> ah. Yes. 
Okay. I work for Robinson Republic. Right. Yes. But you are a paid advisor. I am a paid advisor, yes. Very good. Okay. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, I'm not going to even go on that. But the, the point is this. I think it's very disingenuous to, to tell this person, uh, this Georgian, who's worked or who basically needs access to health care, but because of partisan politics, how I want to message to a particular part of Georgia, because I may not receive the GOP nomination, to tell them that we want to wait and that we don't want to do this because of how it was ushered in through a Democratic uh, presidential uh, administration versus this one. I think at the end of the day, this is an issue that's going to play out big in the governor's race. I think education is going to dominate, but I think that rural voters who right now are in this area, and this is the other big misconception about Medicaid expansion. What Republicans have done a really good job of in this state is that when you talk about Medicaid expansion, you automatically think that it's going to cater towards African Americans uh, in this in this state, right? But it's just as many rural white voters who need Medicaid, probably more than some of the African Americans that need it, right? And so I'm calling it out because I think that what Brian just clearly showed us and and and, and told us is that. If you mention these two words in a Republican primary, then these white conservative voters are not going to vote for you because it's more entitlement program, it's more big spending from federal government. Well, as we sit here, we got a president that has been a bigger spender of federal government money than his predecessor. I mean, he is spending a lot of money for programs to like try to send troops over to Mexico to build a wall. And so I think that this Medicaid expansion issue, we as Democrats, we've got to take it to the people down in South Georgia, North Georgia, West Georgia, East Georgia, and say, look, the Republicans are failing you. Each year, they tell you what you want to hear. They make it look like we as Democrats want to continue to try to spend your taxpayers' money to try to create more entitlement programs. But the fact of the matter is, if Governor Deal woke up tomorrow morning, and if he decided that he wanted to expand Medicaid in the state, he could do it. And yes, there may have to be some conversations about how we fund it, but at the end of the day, 500,000 plus Georgians. 800,000 is that much. Well, the, the uninsured number is 800,000. Yeah. So would they all qualify for Medicaid, though? But, but, but there's 500,000 people who actually are, are being, quite frankly, um, restricted access to Medicaid because of the gap, because it's all about how much money you make and how much government assistance that you're making. But the fact is, is that the governor could change it today. And so to hear Dennis, that all the Republicans running for office right now are saying that they not only will uh, not expand Medicaid, but they're not even open to a third-way solution, uh, is pandering to a Republican electorate. I believe that whoever the nominee is for governor on the Republican side, and if Democrats, if we do our job amplifying this issue, I think they're going to have to come to the middle on this because what we do know is how you get elected in Georgia right now is turn out your Republican base and get as many independents as you possibly can. Because as we see here, there's just not enough Democratic voters to uh, elect a person uh, as, as governor uh, in the state that's a Democrat. And that's it for this week's Political Breakfast. I'm Dennis O'Hare. We've been listening to my recent conversation with Democratic strategist Theron Johnson and Republican strategist Brian Robinson. Now, this was taped in front of a live audience at the Georgia Tech School of Public Policy. Thanks to the chair, Dr. Kay Husbands-Feeling, Professor Richard Bark, Fatima Ladipo, and everyone at the Georgia Tech School of Public Policy for hosting us. 
And thanks to producer Sam Whitehead. Now, if you like this show, subscribe, and you can do that wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to rate us. That's a great way to make sure other people can find us. We'll be back in your feed and in your head soon with more nourishing political conversation. Be sure to join us. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at wabe.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. Ever wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E.